Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This is a podcast where once a week we start with a random article and explore it and then follow the rabbit hole of links and see what fun places it takes us. Today's starting topic is Woodland High School in Illinois. John, why don't you tell us a bit about it? Well, according to the Wikipedia article, Eric, you have told about as much as there is to tell, (laughs) but I guess I could expound on it a little. The Woodland High School is located in Striator, Illinois. Its athletic teams play in the Tri-County Conference, and its mascot is the Warriors. Well, let's see what else is in Streeter, Illinois. Let's see if there's any interesting stuff going on. There. I would be interested in learning the correct pronunciation of Streeter, <laughs> Illinois. I have a well, feeling I like was butchering it. Streeter? Streeter. Mm-hmm. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's how you read that upside down e okay. thing. Is er yeah. Stritter. Stritter. Ooh, situated on the Vermilion River. So it's like a city in Pokemon. Got it. <laughs> now it's southwest of Chicago by a lot. Like it is in dead. I don't know why they even referenced Chicago. It's in it's, the square. Well, Chicago is the only the thing Illinois. in Illinois that people know about. It's kind of kind of like everything to the east of the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania is just Philadelphia. Yeah. Is it 90 miles due north? Doesn't matter. It's Philly. It's still there. Uh, let's see. It looks like it has a population of 13,710 people. Is that a lot? I don't 13, know. 13,000? That's... I mean... I mean, I it's guess... a mid-size. It's a decent town. It's yeah. not, like, huge. Okay. But, uh... Wow. The guy who discovered Pluto, actually, is from here. Ooh, yeah. nice. I, yeah, there's a find for you. The guy I, I bet he's rolling in his grave. One would hope. He discovered it in the 1930s. It's a guy by the name of Clyde Tombaugh. Uh, hmm. The first object to be discovered in what would later be identified as the Coupier Belt. So they do have a little bit of notoriety, even if NASA mm-hmm. felt it uh, well, something that they were going to be stripped of. Did this Clyde Tombaugh do anything else it's worth seeing why not follow the link why not go deeper (laughs) he did serious scientific research of ufos that's one thing he did and he built several telescopes with lenses and mirrors by himself that's I can't really fathom in, that's that. That's in 1926, too. That's wow. pretty impressive, given the era. Yeah. You can't just... You couldn't just hop on Amazon, get some custom-made custom, custom made lenses. <laughs> now, he mm-hmm. apparently was a navigation guide, though. During mm-hmm. World War II, he taught it uh, at Northern Arizona University, and... Uh, 
basically gave those skills to naval naval cadets at the time. He died in 1997. So he is rolling in his grave. He is dead. He is. See, when you said that Pluto was discovered in 1930s, I was kind of like, maybe he's still out there. But like Pluto, he's no longer a part of our solar system. <laughs> yeah, but he lived a, lo- a good long life, 90, 90 years old. So, you know. Hmm. He discovered quite a few asteroids as well. He did, though I don't think I've heard of any of them. I guess none of them threatened to crash into Earth <laughs> yet. So, so far, he hasn't doomed us in any way, shape, or form. I like that. Looks like he's also the great uncle of Los Angeles Dodgers pitcher Clayton Kershaw. Hmm. That might be worth investigating further. If I, you know, follow baseball, I might be intrigued. Though I kind of am aiming towards space at this point. Or maybe his interest in UFOs. August 20th, 1949, Tom Ball saw several identified objects near Las Cruces, New Mexico. So is this article basically alleging that he was the guy who made Roswell Roswell? I I think so. I think that's what I'm gathering from it. In order to settle this, there's only one thing we can do. We have to go to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Ah, yeah. To figure out what exactly is going on. Yeah, what happened in Las Cruces? That's also where he died. Huh. So he really enjoyed it there. Even though it couldn't have been terribly good for stargazing. At 101,000 people, it is the second largest city in the state after Albuquerque. The good old ABQ. That being said, there's probably a lot of light pollution, but I guess he was able to find UFOs there anyway. And the city has kind of stuck with a UFO tradition ever since. The city is also the headquarters for Virgin Galactic, which is uh, pretty impressive for a city I haven't heard of really until now. But man, this whole place has a huge history. Lots of stuff going on back and forth between... uh, Catholicism and Mexico back Mexico used to own this slab of land hmm. well you would think so New Mexico well, true they were trying to start a second one they they were but didn't didn't pan out in the way they thought whoa this city is growing super quick in 1990 the city population here was 57,000 people and it's over a hundred thousand now. In 20 years, it's doubled in size. You can barely find that anywhere in the United States. That's incredible. Yep, that is some population growth there. You remember that movie uh, where Robert Downey Jr. is kind of uh, tending to, I think, a baby? Or maybe a pregnant lady? It's called Due Date. Yeah, 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 Due Date. Well, they filmed that in Las Cruces. Really? Yeah. Yeah, due date's uh, wow. car crash scene was filmed off of the Ranaconda Bridge and the overpass of I-25 and Highway 70 for the hmm. escape from Mexico. So these are not these are not unfamiliar. I mean, they were in other films too. This place is oh, yeah, in that's... the 1968 Clint Eastwood movie Hang 'Em High. Wow, hmm. I've actually seen this move this town multiple places. Huh. Yeah, let's uh, see what um, 
due date. Uh, what else is going on? With, uh, who's in that? Due date? Well, Robert Downey Jr. for one. That's enough to pique my interest right there. Zach Galifianakis. Yeah, I knew he was in it as well. Zach Galifianespi. <laughs> Fantastic. And a dog with a cone on its head. Okay, so due date was... Are they returning a library book? Because I don't think Zach Galifianakis is pregnant. Maybe that dog is. Hmm. You know, well. I saw this movie, but I don't remember exactly what the plot was. Oh, Robert Downey Jr. is married, and his wife's at home, and she's oh, about to give birth. Okay, and they have to get home, yeah. And then Zach Galifianakis shows up and ruins everything. Like always. Yeah. It seems in like the best it's... way possible. Well, yeah. Who doesn't love the little ZG? Let's see, who else is in Jamie Foxx, I don't remember him what? being in there. The RZA? The RZA. <laughs> he played airline screener. Huh. Danny McBride of Eastbound and Down. Mm-hmm. Charlie Sheen is in this? Wait, wait, wait. When did this come out? Because uh, I don't want to follow this on the premise of curiosity when it's probably just around that time when Charlie Sheen is really mm. popular from being crazy. This is true. Yeah, he is in this movie as himself, but, doing a cameo. Wait, oh, no, it, this is John Cryer. Yeah. So oh, it was so a two and a half men peak of know, their They were probably watching thing. the show or something like that. You think? Maybe. That could be. Angus T. Jones was in the two and a half men scene. Oh, so there was actually a scene in the show in the movie. Doesn't really explain that part in the synopsis, so... We may end up having to go see this movie at some <laughs> point after we are done with the podcast, yeah. but well, let's see who's on the soundtrack. Very, very strange soundtrack indeed. Yeah, yeah. Closing Wolf Mother time. and mm. Band of Horses. Oh. Cream, mm. Rod Stewart, mm -hmm. Ice Cube, mm. and then Christoph Beck. Is he the orchestra guy yeah he okay. is the composer that's the term that's the term for orchestra guys who make <laughs> music for films and then there's also an additional song credit for Denny McBride who I suppose did a rather uh, raucous uh, <laughs> cover of Closing Time oh, during sure the film during the milm movie film milm the film yeah, yeah, the Flynn. It's 40% around tomatoes. Roger Ebert gave it a two and a half out of a possible four. Coincidence? I think <laughs> not. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was um, intentional. Yeah. Ebert compares it to planes, trains, and automobiles. How about that? That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, yeah, Robert Downey Jr. is trying to get on a plane mm -hmm. and can't because Zach Galifianakis is there being a weirdo yeah. and shuts everything down. There you go. Robert Downey Jr. would be the Steve Martin. He'd be a good Steve Martin. Yeah. Okay, so where, where should we go, do you think? I don't there's know. Lot, I mean, this has a very rich um, there's a lot of links. There's a lot of options. Very so wide variety. We yeah. should go with something that we wouldn't pick. Something, right. you know... That's definitely not 
more Robert Downey Jr. because <laughs> I would just do that right. reflexively. Um, um, how about well, we go we to the Wikipedia article for Rest Stop? I was thinking the exact same thing, all right, all so right. let's do it. I'm excited because I don't know why there would be that. Oh, it took us to Rest Area. Oh, it That's redirected what it took us. us. To. Okay. Okay. Well, let's see. Other names include motorway service area, service station, rest and service area, or an RSA for short, resto service plaza, and service centra. That's with an RE mm. at the end for fancy reasons. <laughs> says that rest areas are common in the United States, Canada, Australia, and parts of Europe, Africa, and Asia. So if you're driving through Antarctica anytime soon, pee before you get in the car. <laughs> oh, that's not a good thing. And this has multiple citations. Many rest areas have the reputations of being unsafe with regard to crime. Yep. Especially at night, since they are situated routinely in remote areas. So it's saying here under United States that um, rest areas in California are maintained by Caltrans. By are you Cal familiar with Caltrans? Caltrans? Is there a link for that? Yes, yes there is. Okay, California Department of Transportation is what it takes us to. Oh, well. Hmm. Caltrans. So I guess maybe they're the. Um, oh, here. The California Department of Transportation. Oh, okay. So Caltrans. Caltrans, not yeah. Cal Moo Trans Choo Choo. No. Cow <laughs> trains. Okay. Yep. yep. Got it. Um, and yeah, it says that that is an executive department. Okay. So Caltrans is like, um, for us, would be PennDOT. That would be their their um, version of that. The earliest bureau's incarnation uh, for the California Transportation Authority was the Bureau of Highways which was signed into law in 1895. We don't think of cars really existing by that point in history, and California was like, yep, way of the future, build everything. In Especially in California, because the East was more mm -hmm. settled at that time. Right. Like, they'd actually been around for, at that point, at least 100 years. Yeah. And in California, it was like... You know, pretty new. Still frontiery, yeah. In a way, that's like still outlaw Wild West kind of time yeah. period. So that's a little surprising that yeah. they would have their act together and the foresight to develop that kind of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But hey, I mean, more power to them. It seems to have benefited them. Yeah. Although now they're huge, and they have irreversible traffic problems in cities like Los Angeles. So Well, it's a good thing they got started when they did. Yeah, because then. then they'd be even further behind than they already are. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, it was one of the first agencies in the United States to paint center lines on highways. Mm. Can you imagine driving on roads as we have them now without a dividing line saying, <laughs> you stay over here, you stay over here. That would get to be chaotic really I quick. I have driven in places that have that. Particularly really? in New York. What? Where it was very, very scary. That doesn't sound... Pl- you mean upstate New York? Or I mean New York City. There's no there, lines. Not everywhere. Right. But there were roads that I was on and I looked around and there was no line on the road and I thought, mm. oh, Mm-mm. well, that's good for a four-lane No, road. it's not. <laughs> that's the worst thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've only driven to New York City once, and the rest of the times that I've been there, I've relied on other people to get me there. Mm. It's not something I would do again, but man, I'm glad I didn't hit many of those streets. I don't know, maybe <laughs> I did, and I was just too stressed out to notice, like I was, thought I was spacing out at that point, mm. but that's that sounds horrifying. Yeah. Were there a lot of people on those streets? A lot of other cars? Yeah. There are a lot of cars, and it is a big, gigantic mess. No. Of I... people trying to create lanes. Oh, no. And... This is why we have to have this system. This is what we need. This The center lines. This is what we need. Bots, dots for... Oh, bots, dots. What is that? Bots. I just kind of read that off of the page absentmindedly, and... Didn't really dots, dots, yeah, that's interesting. Figure out what that was, but it sounds neat. Oh, those are the um, raised pavement markers, uh, the reflectors. Oh, let you know that there's a road. Yeah, so basically, the opposite of the center line is the bots dots. Yeah, those little reflective deals that let you know you're not going into a ditch. Oh, and it says here that bots dots are rarely used in regions with substantial snowfall hmm. because snowplows damage or dislodge them, which <laughs> definitely makes sense. Well, look at them. They're like little glass softballs. You can see a plow just popping right at one of the, popping <laughs> one of those things right out of the ground. And it would be worse because then there'd be like, not only would there be snow, but there would be the equivalent of large glass marbles rolling mm. around on the road. Yeah. Have you ever stepped in large glass marbles? Have you ever seen how well your footing holds <laughs> up when you're on top of them? Ugh. Yeah, that's when people fall and, uh... I don't think the cars would fall down, but... Yeah, probably not. They might spin, they might do something weird. Yeah. Some sort of... You can always roll. Roll yeah. over. Yeah. You know, you hear about that. Made of polyester. Oh, so they're not like glass marbles as well. Probably should have read that line. <laughs> yeah, there it is right there. Bots Dots are named after Dr. Albert Dysert Bots, California Department of Transportation engineer. But check this out. Even though we are a state that experiences snow, us here in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts both use bath stats mm. during the summer months for temporary lane markings and construction zones. So, we have seen them probably. But I'm gonna keep my eye out now. Whoa, this is very strange here. Um, in New Mexico, where snow is common during the winter, 
Bots dots are used along with Stimsonite markers to outline gore areas at interchanges, but what? the state does not use either for regular lane markings. So well, I am very curious as to what gore areas are. That sounds interesting. I have, before we look, I'm just going to okay. say what I'm expecting. I'm expecting okay. a reflective outline of people who have been murdered on the ground like they see in the, like you see in the TV sh cop shows. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's see. Nope. Oh, I wasn't right. No. That wasn't... Hmm. Triangular piece of land found where roads or rivers merge or split. When two roads merge, the area is sometimes revert, referred to as a merge nose. So they're frequently... Those areas frequently marked by stripes or chevrons at both entrance and exit ramps. Those mm. things. Yeah, those things. Okay. So they help oh. you sort of figure out the dividing line between... A lane that's about right. to go away, and a lane that you can stay on if you want to continue on the road you're at. You know, I um, gotta say, if I was naming that, I would not call it a gore area. Yeah, it. I mean, I guess it's because you're sort of seeing the metaphysical area in mm. which the lanes are being torn apart from each other. There's gore. That's true. There's just this yeah, existential yeah. gore between the two lanes, the one that's about to not exist anymore, and the one that gets to continue going on. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. That makes That's sense. That's the kind of gore that this is talking about. I really wish there was some place for us to go <laughs> on this article that kind of referenced that sort of existential angst, but <laughs> I don't really think we're going to get Impact that out of here. attenuators. Impact attenuators. You know what I think those are? There's little... There's buckets of water that you see people run into. Oh, in movies. yeah. They're like the heavy things so yeah. that people don't completely wreck <laughs> they don't go all the way off right. the road well where can we go from there see also road signs road sign gantry that's interesting what's gantry i have no idea what a gantry is a gantry also known as a sign holder road sign holder sign structure or road sign structure is a traffic sign assembly in which signs are mounted on an overhead support. Hmm. So they're those like trusses you see built over top of you whenever you're yeah. going into a major city, major urban area. If you ever see those light boards that say hmm. like, oh, it's 12 minutes until you get onto this road to New York City due to traffic, that's what that sign is hanging on, is a gantry. Hmm. Legitimately did not know that. Yeah. I didn't know those things had names. Thought like I thought that was road signs. I thought yeah. that was the name of yeah. it. Yeah, you just, like, there was the sign, and then the thing that was behind it was just the thing. <laughs> there was a continuation of the sign. Right. But no, they're their own thing. Yeah. Different kinds. There's half gantries. There's butterfly gantries. Some can be cantilevered on one side, left, right, or maybe even the center. Apparently, we can disambiguate gantry. But we... Do we dare? We do. That's what we do here at the Wikipedia Chronicles, <laughs> Eric. We dare. All right, let's see what else gantry could be. Oh, I'm already sold on something. Yeah? Are you sold on that? Did you see it? See, what is it? Well, there's there's a gantry for rocketry. Mm. Though that's probably just the thing that holds the space shuttle up. Probably. Okay. Let's just but let's let's do it. Alright. We're going in. Back to space. Back to space. Oh yep. yeah, yep. 
Look that at this. All those is. launch pads. Mm. The Soviet ones are way cooler than ours. I'm sorry. Sorry, USA. <laughs> but oh wow! if yeah. you scroll down to the thing that talks about the uh, Balkanur Cosmodrome, mm. it is spectacular looking. Like, aesthetically, yeah. that's really cool. Look, like, pulls apart and... Looks sort of like something that... Uh, that guy from Alien, the artist from Alien, would sort of create. H.R. Mm. Geiger? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Looks Geigerian. <laughs> we could uh, look up that thing. I'm, that I'm has there. a link. All right. Let's do it. Baikonur Cosmodrome. Oh, man, look at all the Russian. It's located in the desert steppe of Kazakhstan. What is a desert steppe? It's spelled S-T-E-P-P-E. -P -P -E. Desert steppe? Well... I'm actually really not entirely remembering. Oh, it's like a uh, desert, but grasslands? Hmm. It's kind of like a plains. Yeah, maybe. basically. As to why it's a desert, I'm not entirely sure. Whoa, they have a lot of launch pads. There are, I mean, if I'm understanding this correctly, 250 launch pads. 250? Wow. Why would they... I mean, the Soviets must have been real serious about their space program if that's how many launch pads they had. That could be. How many do we have? I can think of two, maybe three <laughs> off the top of my head. There's like Houston and Florida and... Uh, I think I think we're out. <laughs> that's that's a, There's other launch pads, folks. We have two. Meanwhile, Kazakhstan has 250. Whoa. How did, did we win the Cold War? Are you sure? With statistics like that? Was it, did it officially end? Or was did it just it really kind of like... Get colder. Yeah. The Cold War just got a little cold. It just, it got numb. Got numb more, yeah. Yeah. We'll thaw hmm. it out soon. It'll stop being the Sub-Zero War and start just being the Cold War again. Yeah. There are seasons to it, you know. Oh, well that might be part of the reason why. Because the Russians have kind of been the only people taking anyone into the International Space Station for the past several years since the end of the space shuttle program. So maybe it's an okay thing that they have as many launch pads as they do <laughs> since they can actually manage to take some people up and back. Yeah. That's a valuable service. I'd appreciate if they helped us bring our astronauts back from space. Probably can't live up there forever. I would imagine not. I mean, yeah. there's very little life support up in space. <laughs> very little, uh, very few things to build your muscles with, like gravity. Gravity's a really good thing to, I mean, I've been doing gravity yeah. workouts every day, getting up, walking. I mean, gravity gets a bad rap because of all the falling, but when you think about it, it's kind of a nice thing to have around. I, I would say so, wholeheartedly. Now, there is actually a popular culture section. So we're talking about movies and stuff? We have Command and Conquer Generals um, that feature the facility. Uh, Call of Duty Black Ops. Was, this was like the main location of one of the missions. Huh. Um, and there was a big Bang Theory episode featured around this facility as well. Uh, those guys, they're always up to nerdy antics. 
Also, the first few levels of Destiny, the game, the video game. Well, well, of those things, I am. I don't know. Uh, sort of intrigued by what could have happened in the Big Bang Theory episode at this location. That's true. Solely because so much of the time they never really go anywhere. They're just yeah. kind of at a conference for mm. some sort of science thing or at their university. Yeah. Or like Comic Con. You know, they're at generic nerd stuff. They right. barely ever get to places like Of Note. Yeah, I mean, we could uh, check out the, the countdown. countdown reflection. Yeah. Let's check this Season out. 5 of The Big Bang Theory. Does that make it recent? I've lost count entirely of how many uh, seasons I'm had. pretty sure they're up to, like, well, I mean, we're here, so. It's. Okay, this is just. Way five. It's just a list of the episodes. It didn't even take us to the section of the article about that particular episode. Not very helpful, Wikipedia. Eric, maybe we should have given them our three dollars, and they could have true. made this link more useful. Yep, it takes money to make Wikipedia. Every oh, if... it's the final episode of the season. Oh, it's the grand finale. Appropriate. Okay, so Howard was with two astronauts, one Russian, and I guess is the other one also Russian. Maybe not. Spoilers, by the way, if you follow this show, there may be some pretty intense spoilers. You never know, going yeah. into finale territory. Fair warning. That's true. Alright. Very, I mean, we're going to spoil, like, life and pretty much. everything. If you guys have any sort of reservations about not having life, the universe, and everything spoiled for you, this may not work out for you. But, I mean... Hey, if you want to hang around, if you're, you know, into that sort of thing, we can welcome that. Okay, so, yeah, they're, um, they're basically going to the International Space Station in this episode, and they're launching from Kazakhstan. Who is going... Are, are you saying Howard is actually in Howard Wallowitz? Yeah, he goes to he goes the space station. To the space station. Okay. Yeah. With a turtleneck on still? Probably has a spacesuit, but underneath, I imagine, um, or at least in his heart. Yeah, I'm sure the turtleneck is somewhere in there. Oh yeah, Mike Massimino is actually a real astronaut. I forgot about that. Really? Yes. He. Uh, I actually watched a video um, at the Air and Space Museum mm -hmm. where he was like. It was a 3D IMAX film about space, and he was talking about fixing the Hubble telescope and stuff. So Whoa. I do remember him now. Got some cred. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the finale of The Big Bang Theory, compared to the middle of the season, only had 13 million viewers compared to a season high of 16.5 million it's almost as though the viewership suffers when you have a story driven show versus when you have a mm. comedy driven show like true it seems like things kind of fell off 
people stopped by for a few laughs and then they were mm-hmm. out the door. Yeah, you think a finale would draw in more viewers, but I guess it wasn't enough. To be fair, if I am kind of recalling all of the characters on the show correctly, I, I don't know if I would tune in to see Howard Wallowitz get shot into space. Hmm. Or probably, let's go back to the synopsis here. Oh no, he actually does get launched into space. I thought they were going to like cop out and then have mm-hmm. him... No. no, he goes up there. He goes. There's like a whole season or maybe it's... Maybe it's half a season or really, a couple episodes at least, where he's up there. That's what? That's a big step. Mm-hmm. All right. Well played, Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. Have a few tricks up your sleeve. Okay, so let's see. Where do we want to go from this episode? Where the page? Well, there are some things here that sound pretty interesting. The werewolf transformation. The weekend mm. vortex could be kind of Groundhog Day from the sounds of it. Mm. Uh, the shiny trinket maneuver doesn't sound like a, sounds more like a bit than an episode. I think that could be interesting to see how they morphed it into 20 minutes. Shiny trinket maneuver. All right, shiny trinket maneuver it is. If that was not the one episode, I couldn't find my way back to. There we go. Okay. Amy and Sheldon's relationship hits a snag when Sheldon refuses to appreciate the news that Amy's paper is being published in the reputed scientific journal Neuron. Hmm. Huh. That sounds about right. So, Sheldon is not sensitive to another person's feelings Hmm. during this episode. Hmm. Okay. And what's, what's the shiny trinket here? Let's see. Oh, Where's Leonard my... tells him to buy something for Amy to make up mm. for his insensitivity. Okay. And Penny, of course, recommends jewelry. So they go to the jewelry store. And it's a... Oh, it's a tiara. I'm not very familiar with this neuron journal. Is that a real thing? Looks like a real thing. Is it? Whoa. It is a real thing. But even Wikipedia is not that familiar with it. It says it... Wow. Yeah. Hmm. There's not a lot here about it. Bi-weekly, peer-reviewed scientific journal of neuroscience published by Cell Press. It was established in 1988. So it's been kicking along for a while. How do you publish bi-weekly... Things about neuroscience? Yeah. What is there about neuroscience that you have to tell that much about it? There's I mean, obviously, it's a complicated well, yes. subject, but right. but how to do you publish boil something that down that to often. a magazine? Yeah, there's yeah, hmm. a little unusual. Yeah, I have to admit, it's something that you wouldn't. I, I I don't think you could have legitimate publications in on a biweekly basis. You would think that the studies would take more time, and that there wouldn't be that many of them because there wouldn't be that many individuals qualified to run the studies to begin with. Right. So, I don't so, know, maybe it's a really popular degree? Well, we could we could see what um what else Cell Press has published. Let's see. Let's go deeper. Let's see what they've done. Ah, an imprint of Elsevier. Hmm. One of my favorite printing houses. Biomedical journals is what they print. And apparently the whole press started with the magazine Cell in January 1974. Hmm. 
Well, that makes a lot of sense, considering yeah. they are the Cell Press. Indeed, indeed. And I guess Cell is sort of the companion piece to Neuron. Neuron is kind of the logical knockoff of the uh, Cell demographic. Yeah. If you're interested in cells, maybe some of you will be interested in nerve cells. That's true. Headquarters is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Logical. Lots of good uh, people doing good studies up there. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Lewin is the founder of the cell press. What did he do? What was his role? Was he more of a journalist or was he more of a scientist? And he's the founder of this thing, and then he's the textbook author of a book by the name of Genes. Hmm. Interesting. He holds a PhD from Cambridge University and an MSc from the University of London, so I am inclined to say that the answer to my question is that he is a rather well-versed biologist. Hmm. As opposed to just being an author. I think so. Okay. He's also a master of wine. What does that mean? And published widely on the subject. Huh. Well, we could figure out what it means. Alright. What does it take to be a master of wine? MW. There's literally an abbreviation for it. <laughs> it's like getting a degree. Wow. The Institute of Masters of Wine in the United Kingdom generally regarded in the wine industry as one of the highest standards of professional knowledge. Well, bless their hearts, they're a non-profit <laughs> organization funded by its members and by corporate sponsors for drunks like you. <laughs> their stated objectives are to promote the knowledge, understanding, and appreciation of wine, to uphold the highest standards within the wine industry, and to enhance personal and professional goals in pursuing wine-related activities. So, if you find yourself terribly moved by spirits, then these guys can hook you up with, with pursuing some wine-related activities hmm. and professional goals thereof. Wow. Before being allowed to enroll for the three-year program of self-study and attendance of educational seminars presented by the Institute, potential candidates must convince the Institute that they have the necessary aptitude by submitting an essay and tasting notes. What? So, before you enter a program that takes three years learning about Whoa. wine or <laughs> something... Yeah. Uh, you have to convince them that you're good enough by submitting an essay. So there's a program to become enrolled in the program, basically, is what's going on here. Yeah, I think so. Apparently, candidates also have to sit for both the theory and practical parts of the examination <laughs> in the same year. Uh, and the theory part is four papers on the subject of wine, and practical is three blind tastings, which, mm. well, that doesn't sound so bad at all. However, if they achieve success in only one part, they may attempt the remaining part in the subsequent two years, so mm. you still have to stick around for remediation. <laughs> You're not good enough to taste wine. Oh, wow. <sighs> Oh, this doesn't end. This process from, is tedious. From 1993 to 2000, 
Of the 266 candidates who undertook the program, total of 85 were successful. What? That's a span of seven years with a one-third acceptance rate. I think you have a better chance of getting into a really good school off of the street than you <laughs> have a chance to become a master of wine. Yeah, I think so. Well, there's here there is a list of wine personalities. I don't know exactly what that means. They all have their own Wikipedia articles, so that's something to them, to their credit. They can't just be winos. They have to be... <laughs> pardon me. They're not just MWs. They're yes. interesting people beyond that. We could just... How about this guy? How about David Peppercorn? <laughs> like his last name. David Peppercorn. His last name is named after a spice. Oh, well, that's disappointing. However, he is a French wine importer. And Just imports, no exports? Apparently, uh, he lives in Britain. So that's one of the easier jobs. You literally just have about, what, 20 miles or so of water between you and France. How much importing is there to do? Hmm. Like, I, I don't know if that really counts at that point. I don't know, I think it's a little selfish of him to just import the wine. So, do you really think that France wants to have Britain's wine? Mm. Or do you Good think, point. are you saying, like, he wants to pass it on to other countries in the region? Like, he could be like, hey, Ireland, here you go. Or yeah, maybe. Or like, even maybe, maybe just export something else, you know? He's getting all this wine. He's giving nothing back. Yeah. Yeah. The love you take is equal to the love you make type of thing, you know. Exactly. Yeah. That's the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Probably. Oh, he's married to one of the other select few MWs in the world. Serena Sutcliffe. Wow. Between Peppercorn and Sutcliffe, this is one of the most Britishly named families <laughs> I have seen in quite some time. Probably since Benedict Cumberbatch and... Whoever it is he's marrying. But mm-hmm. rest assured, she is sound. Her name is very English sounding. Just <laughs> very, very British. So there is actually a controversy on this page. There is. Believe it or not, a uh. wine connoisseur has a controversy. In the 90s, they questioned the authenticity of imperial bottles of Chateau Petrus um, from several years. And uh, let's see, the tastings were conducted from the collection of Hardy Rodenstock, a German wine collector, who later was embroiled in a counterfeit wine controversy. Are you kidding? Involving a bottle reported belonging to Thomas Jefferson. Who, who counterfeits wine? And who. <laughs> like, this is so. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> who counterfeits wine, but then who also tastes it and thinks, you know, this doesn't taste like real, the real stuff. I think this is counterfeit. Yeah, that's... How do you, how can you possibly know that... This tastes more like a 1922 than a 1921. (laughs) I don't know. There's gotta be some sort of art to this that's legitimate that could bring this to the surface, but at the same time, 
What if there isn't? What if all of these things taste basically the same and these guys just kind of ganged up on this one poor German dude and are just kind of like, no, we think it's fake. Like, who, who are you going to believe? You're going to believe the big group of people that have come to a consensus? Or are you going to believe this one lone German dude, this guy who comes from a country known for its beer, not for its wine, who might be a little bit jealous of all the other countries having better wine mm. and better access to it, where he just snapped one day, maybe said, I'm just going to start saying these bottles of wine that aren't as good are as good, and see if anybody notices. Which, I mean, actually, now that I've spoken all that out, kind of makes sense. Maybe he was legitimately yeah. jealous. I wonder... This guy has his own Wikipedia page, so I don't know if... The German dude? Yeah. Harry Roddenstock? Harry Har- Rodden- no. Hardy Roddenstock. Yeah, <laughs> I'm there. Alright, let's see. Oh, it's pretty long. Mm. This is a decently sized Wikipedia page here. Yeah. This is unusually long for one dude. Ooh, his legal name was Meinhard Gork. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. All right, we we won't go into that any further. That speaks for itself, I think. That's just... There's just some sort of comedic poetry to that kind of a name. Meinhard Gork. He's a former publisher and manager of pop and schlager music in Germany. So this guy, pop unlike the other schlager. ones, yeah, I guess that's a kind of German music genre. I've never heard of schlager. Well, let's not get further into this obviously <laughs> sort of fastidious figure's legal affairs. Let's just go ahead and entertain our curiosity for schlager music. All right, let's see. Ooh. Also known in the United States as Entertainer Music or German Hit Mix. Oh, uh, yeah. Gotta love that Entertainer Music. Oh, yeah. You know, like uh, the theme to uh, The Sting mm. or that uh, the Billy Joel song, The Entertainer. It's some good music. That's good music. Yeah. But it's a style of popular electronic music prevalent in Central or nor- Northern Europe and Southeast Europe. In particular, Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, Flanders, Republic of Macedonia, Mm. Slovenia, and a bunch of others. I'm tired of reading a list of countries. But it's a bunch of pop tunes that, oh, this is surprising, typically centers on love, relationships, and feelings. Hmm. Something you don't find in most popular music. I agree. You just don't see it enough. Don't hear it enough. Don't feel it enough but if you look at the netherlands schlager music which is called levenslide <laughs> the genre literally means life song so basically this is the dutch way of saying a slice of life type of song okay so it's not talking about pop love like i see you at the club and then we're, you know, hitting it off, and then we're dating. No, this is, like, real, like, we have taxes to file jointly because we're married (laughs) now type stuff. This is the not-screwing-around-anymore kind of love and relationships type thing. This is when people are figuring out the real real issues. The family matters. (laughs) And the traditional instruments in the Netherlands for this is accordion and the barrel organ. What? 
They make pop music out of that? Now, I'm not familiar with the barrel organ. I know of organ. I know Does... pipe organ. Oh. Check out the article for this. This is actually pretty cool. Oh, boy. This is, this is an the organ monkey grinder. organ. If you yeah. Will. Like, have you ever seen a guy with, like, a little... With a top hat and with a little monkey that has, like, mm -hmm. suspenders on? And he's playing music on something? It's probably either an accordion, which you could easily identify, but if it's some other random instrument that's kind of tooting along, box organ. That's what this is. It is a mechanical musical instrument consisting of bellows and one or more ranks of pipes housed in a case, usually of wood, and often highly decorated. It says here the term hurdy-gurdy is sometimes mistakenly applied to a small portable organ that was frequently played by organ grinders. But in the modern usage, the two terms should not be confused. So, hurdy-gurdy is something else entirely. It would seem so. So what is a hurdy-gurdy, if not this? It appears to be a kind of violin-looking thing, a little bit. Violin, huh? It's a string instrument of some kind. Crank turned. What? Doesn't. Wow. How? How does this work? <laughs> There's a keyboard going up the side of the neck. There are indeed strings along the sides, along both sides of the neck, and similar to, has a very similar head to like a guitar or a violin at the top, where the strings are threaded through and tightened. But there's also a <laughs> crank at the bottom? What? Wow. <laughs> this is really fascinating. It's very, very strange. Okay, mm. so the article sort of explains how the hurdy-gurdy works. It produces a sound with the, when you turn the crank by way of a wheel rubbing against the strings. Hmm. So basically the wheel serves kind of like as a violin bow would okay. normally. And the friction of that across the strings causes sound to come out. And I suppose the keys along the neck tense or depress the string within the neck. Hmm. And that allows you to fluctuate the tone of resonance itself. Interesting. I'm looking at the uh, origin of the name here because Hurdy Gurdy is a very strange name. Indeed. Um, apparently, in the mid 18th century, mm -hmm. it is onomatopoeic in origin after the repetitive warble and pitch that characterizes instruments with solid wooden wheels that have warped to the changes in humidity. So, Hurdy Gurdy. So it's literally just a name that came about by way of people emulating the sound that it made. Yep, that's what it is. Apparently in Ukraine, this thing was used by blind street musicians. Widely used <laughs> by blind street musicians. Huh. Most of whom were purged by Stalin in the 1930s. Of course they were. <laughs> Why not? I, I, apparently there's an article about them being persecuted by Stalin. <laughs> By these blonde, blonde, blind Ukrainian hurdy-gurdy players being persecuted by Stalin. Well, I'm very curious about that. All right. Persecuted band urists it is. There is 
a wow. This is a huge there's, article. There's a list of persecuted banderists. Oh no. And it looks to be several hundred people. At least. That's mm. insane. Look at all of there these. There are a lot of people that were persecuted here. Now, were they persecuted because they were hurdy-gurdy players? You know, it seems weird to me that this is a consistent narrative, that they're still... Like, I thought when I clicked this link that it was going to be, like, some sort of larger persecution of, like, sort of sleazy musician guys. But no, mm. it's still sticking with the blind musicians. So, uh, hmm. and this isn't just Stalin. The persecution of these guys started in 1876 in Imperial Russia, and then whenever they made the switch to Communist Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution, these guys didn't get a break. <laughs> Stalin came in, and while everybody else is supposed to be equal, he was still purging, purging all these blind musicians. Stevie Wonder would find no home in Stalin's Russia. Even the Nazis persecuted him. What is so offensive so about blind streaming? <laughs> you would think this would bring a sort of jocularity, something pleasant to the, to you know, just an urban square. Like if they're blind people and they can make music, then cool, good for them. Maybe we don't understand. Maybe we uh, just don't understand how hideous the music was that they were making. Maybe Hurdy Gurdy <laughs> is like named after the terrible music the blind musicians made. That can very well be. That may be why it got such a kind of atrocious name for the instrument. Well, you know, I think this is a good place to kind of stop because I don't know. I think we've reached about the peak of yeah. I would of say so too. Here. Poor, poor blind musicians being persecuted, persecuted by Stalin. I mean, there is no happier note to uh, to wind this down on. Yeah. All right. Well, so there you have it, folks. From Woodland High School, Illinois, to persecuted banderists. Um. Yeah. So, uh, if you enjoyed this, please visit Facebook. It will be. Um, facebook.com slash twc podcast and give us a like and a follow and then visit us on itunes and give us a rate and review and if you're listening to us you probably already know where to get the episodes but just in case you can find new episodes on our website twc.ericteribio.com twc is you know initials for the wikipedia chronicles obviously and uh, Eric Toribio, that's T-O-R-I-B-I-O. I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song. And I would like to thank Billy Murray for our outro song. I also implore you to check out the other podcasts on the Eric Toribio Podcast Network, Enter the Critic and Ninjas vs. Podcast. On Enter the Critic, they review movies, both new in theaters and old on Netflix, and they're just a hilarious bunch of guys. And on Ninjas vs. Podcast, they take verses and would-you-rather questions submitted by the listeners, hash them out on the show, and they usually come to a decision about which one is better and which one would win or whatever. And they are also a hilarious bunch of guys. And switching gears a bit, we hate to talk about money on here, 
Um, but we'd like to remind you that it does cost money to produce a podcast. And if you'd like to keep the Wikipedia Chronicles ad-free, please consider donating some money to keep the quality of this show up. Um, anything at all helps. I mean, like, John, what was that uh, that uh, calculation you ran the other day? I think uh, once I ran the numbers, it was something like if everybody who was listening to this podcast right now donated three dollars this outro would be over this second hmm. well that's very good um and lastly our totally true fact for this episode is that the tea bag was originally invented in the Egyptian times um, as a means to preserve corpses. So thank you all again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Far away in That was surprisingly uh, legitimate fact. Yeah. Yeah, the, the tea bags. Was it? I mean, no. But that was sort of you know, sounds real. Yeah, I think I think so. Sort of like how the Arrested Development previews mm. sounded like. Oh yeah, this might happen <laughs> on the next episode of Arrested Development. Sure, I can see that. And that's kind of that's kind of what you're aiming for. So yeah, yeah. Should I not have talked about that during the the outro? The outro music. That's fine. I can. It can be kind of like a known thing. Do you really yeah. expect? I don't, Oh, whoa, turn my mic off. Okay. I don't really know if people would still be listening at that point or if we're yeah. still including this. Yeah, I don't know. If we're just sort of talking ourselves out. Pretty you much. Know. Okay. All right. So, when's out? When does out happen? I guess whenever we wanted to. We don't have to stop oh. around. All right. We'll let him listen to the rest of Jimbo Jambo. I do like Jimbo Jambo. I mean, this Bill Murray guy, he has some real talent. Yeah. Been around since the 20s. He does sound like he has aged. Like in Groundhog Day, it sounds like he's he's really getting up there. He's yeah. at least... He's aged at least 20 years in the last 80. So. Yeah, that's true. It's rough. Ooh, got chilly. Triple agrees. Triple <laughs> is now in my coat. Yeah. Gotta stay warm. Shouldn't have put it at cat level. That was my mistake. I should have hung it up somewhere, but... I wonder what this song's about. I haven't been listening. We're gonna have to record another episode now just so I can figure it out. It's pretty much about him trying to find a bimbo or something. There was the Snake Charmer theme. Did you hear that? There was, like, the Snake Charmer theme you just did? Wait till you see Simbo's movement, everyone with late improvement. Friends at Shimmying, she's a master. She'll take off a porridge. What's, what's happening? She's imported hot Tabasco. Hot Tabasco? Ah, make way, yokels. Here she comes. Not much style, not much speed, but boy, she shakes a wicked weed. Oh, I don't give a Dimbo for any other Bimbo in Timbo Jambo hmm. Town. All right, yeah, after Bimbo's. There it is.